Good morning. I, I guess it's stopping there because uh, each week we're moving slowly through the, uh, the, the passage. But uh, have you ever taken time to stand and gaze at a portrait? You know, really taken time to sort of really stare at it and look at it and, and sort of start to see the details in it. It's not really been my thing. I'm not really like a, a huge art lover, but I do kind of get the fascination in it. You know, great art has this tendency of drawing you in to it. There's like an attraction to it. There's, there's depth to it. There's sort of real meaning, and it kind of calls the observer in. Look further, look further into this. Almost kind of trying to get us to that place of seeing through the eyes of the artist. Well, you've joined us this morning, and we're actually kind of in that series of, of looking into, through the eyes of Paul, really, and gazing at the portrait that he painted 2,000 years ago that he sent to the church in Corinth. This, this whole passage on um, love in 1 Corinthians 13, I consider, is, is like a portrait. You know, he's, he's, he's painted this amazing description of what love is. And, and we're now, so we're journeying through, looking at all the details of what, of what this painting actually looks like. Last week, Neil led us to see patience and kindness in the face of love. Now, we're kind of starting now on a little bit of an awkward part of the passage, in that it's bringing to light some of the characteristics that are not actually present in the face which is kind of a bit odd, though. Although, I reckon if I said to you, describe my portrait to somebody else, you'd probably start off with something like, not much hair there. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I remember um, it was Cromwell, wasn't it, who, who said when he was having his face um, painted, you know, make sure it's warts and all. And I, I, mean, what, that, I remember that famous saying. You know, he wanted to be authentic. He wanted everyone to see it for what it really was. Well, today we're going to be introduced to a couple of warts. <laughs> um, but as I said, these are warts that are not in the painting of perfect love. It doesn't have them in there. It's not in the DNA of perfect love. So why mention them? Well, maybe it's helpful, actually, for us to be aware of some of the things that are kind of absent, as well as the things that are present, in order for us to sort of really discern what is true authenticity, to grow in our discernment of things. So, as you may have gathered, the extract from the passage that I'm going to be looking at is in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, and it's quite simply, love does not envy or boast. Okay, that's it. So you can't say short passage, short sermon. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. But I will try and do my best. Now, before I go any further, I just should say, look, the word in the passage says envy. But actually, we could replace it with other words like like jealousy or like coveting. Although I'll kind of use mainly the word envy. I want to just take a little bit of time just to consider... Why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians? And what was his motive? What was going on inside of him? I think it's really important for us. Paul considered himself to be a genuine, caring father to the church in Corinth. 
And this burden, this responsibility had been given to him by God. It wasn't just his decision. It was God's grace given to him for that responsibility. And Paul had really invested himself loads in establishing the church. He put his time, he put his effort, he sacrificed himself, he put his whole heart into seeing that church being built together in oneness, in togetherness, in unity. You know, he's keen that they would grow in their identity in Christ, growing in their unique giftings and callings, but making sure, of course, these were all really grounded in love. Like as a dad, (laughs) you know, I really want to see my children maturing. I want to see them growing well. I want to see their character sort of taking shape. I want to see what their gifts and their talents are, and I want to to invest and make sure that's in the right way, in the right context, so that they can go out into the world. And actually, you know, they've got the right balance of things in their life, and they're able to love, ultimately, as well as use their talents and gifts. So that's, that's the, the, the heart that Paul has for this church in Corinth. And it's really from this genuine place of care, love and commitment that he can actually write some really tough stuff. So I'm going to make reference to the first scripture I've got for us today, which is from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to 3. I don't know if we're able to bring that up. I don't know if it's uh, possible to share that. Or... No, okay. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to 3, says, but I, and this is Paul writing to the church, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And this is a real challenge to the Corinthians. It's incredibly direct, isn't it? You know, he's saying, you're not acting as spiritual people. You're acting as babies. You're still being like babies. Now, (laughs) at the same time that he made this point to them, he said also, do you know what? Part of the problem is, that you have many guides, but not many fathers. And I think that point is really good for us to just pull apart a little bit. Because I was thinking about this. You know, somebody came to me and said, you know, you aren't being very spiritual. You know, you aren't a spiritual person. You're acting a lot out of, you know, infantness. (laughs) I would find that really hard to receive. Okay, I would want to know that that person was really genuinely for me and had a real father's heart for me. So let's just think a little bit about the difference between what a guide and a father is. A guide will point out stuff, but the guide doesn't really carry the burden of responsibility of being a father. A guide may have sort of a lot of self-interest at heart. You know, he might want sort of something back that's not actually right in return. But a genuine father will give up his desires and his wants in order to help do the right thing for his children. And this sacrifice comes from a compassionate heart and combined with wisdom and, of course, God's grace given to him. A true father is therefore able to make a sober judgment as to the condition of his children. 
and then say and do the right stuff at the right time to help move them towards maturity, even if that runs the risk of relationship stress. Our call as a church is to grow and become mothers and fathers who are willing to carry the burden and lay ourselves down for others. Now, the removal of envy and boasting is a key part of our maturity in this. During worship, I just felt, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, wanting to just say, do you know what? Well done, mothers and fathers. You know, well done. I've, being a parent is not an easy thing. And, you know, mothers and fathers who stick at the job and keep sticking at the job, God would say, well done, faithful servants, you know? You are doing an amazing thing, sticking at that challenging task. So, turning to envy and boasting. You know, Paul cites this is a problem in the church in Corinth. I would say, come on, it's not just Corinth, actually. (laughs) I think it's far bigger than that church. I suspect nowadays there aren't that many churches across the whole world whose members don't struggle with envy at times. On the surface, you kind of may see one thing. But when you start to get into the heart of what's going on, you know, these sorts of things emerge. And there's a really good reason for this, uh, which we're going to come to. But, you know, let's not constrain it, of course, to the church either. It's everywhere. It's across all of mankind. Now, the problem with envy and boasting is that they get in the way of unity. They create, they kind of create environments and atmospheres where it's more about division and separation rather than building oneness. So it's more about selfishness rather than selflessness. One over each other, not loving my neighbour as myself. So let's just sort of move into considering what envy and boasting are. So (coughs) envy and boasting kind of comes to us as thoughts and ideas and feelings, both of which have the power or have the potential to have great power over us. So I really want to stick with this idea or this concept that envy and boasting is an idea that leads to a feeling. I think that is really important. Envy is that feeling that wants us to be aware of something that we do not have, that we think we should have. It kind of highlights our lack. What about boasting? Well, it's kind of like the other side of the coin, isn't it? A feeling that sort of says, I have, (laughs) and I want to make sure that you guys know I have. Both envy and boasting only seem to have any power in the context of relationships with other human beings. You know, I do not have many feelings of envy over my dog. (laughs) And it gets bored of my boasting, I can tell you that. (laughs) Speaking for myself, I kind of struggle more with feelings towards people that I'm kind of in a relationship or connection with. Okay, whether it's in church or whether it's at work or friends or neighbours. I did a quick Google, you know, what what are the main reasons why we envy or boast? And you won't be surprised with what it came up with. Money, wealth, relationship status, including these days social media, fertility and children, physical attractiveness, 
professional success, power. I think most of us can kind of connect with some, if not all, of these. Some of the areas where, from time to time, I struggle with feelings of envy are things like when I'm around people who can do things better than me, like, like their job, or like preaching. Conversely, if I think I'm really good at it, you know, I'm kind of quick to want to show, you know, oh, I'm actually really good at this. <laughs> I also struggle with people who are more intelligent than me, you know, people who've got much better academic success than me. People who are quick thinking, people who are witty, <laughs> people who are more physically attractive or physically fitter than me. And these are just a few of the things that I struggle with. Some of our feelings around envy can be also grounded in really genuine good desires. I mean, you know, it's not wrong to feel like you want to be married if you're single and you may feel envious of others who are in a relationship. Or maybe somebody else got the promotion at work and, you know, you didn't. And you think, well, I've been doing my job really well. I didn't get that. Feel a bit envious. Or maybe as a church, you know, or a larger group of people, you know, we may may feel envious towards others. We may feel envious towards other churches who may be seeing a lot more growth, you know, more salvation. Or maybe even just manifestations of the Spirit, you know. We want that. We want that. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. But humanity has one common problem when it comes to feelings of envy. There comes a point when those feelings are more powerful than our ability to say no. And we all have our Achilles heels, you know, the areas where we struggle. Who's seen the film The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King? Must be a few, yeah. Okay, excellent. It's the third part of the, the trilogy. It's one of my, my favourite um, trilogies ever. I would have shared the video clip, but it isn't PG for the bit that I want to show. Um, the whole story is based around a ring that has magic powers, the ring of power. Now, recognising the potential destruction that the ring carries if it's in the wrong hands, the story is all about a signed group of characters, including a hobbit, taking the ring to a place where it can be destroyed forever. Now, there's a creature in the movie called Gollum. Gollum's whole life becomes one that is centred around gaining and keeping hold of the ring of power, what he calls his precious ring. Well, in the final episode, it takes us back to a scene early on in Gollum's life where he was actually called Smeagol. The scene is set where Smeagol and his best friend, Deagle, are fishing together in a boat. They're having fun together. But they happen to stumble across this ring of power. Now, Deagle claims the right over this ring. It was was him who actually found it first. But the attraction of the ring becomes too great to Smeagol. And in the end, Smeagol kills Deagle to take the ring from him. And thus begins the descent of Smeagol into a hellish existence, doing everything in his power to keep hold of this ring. I think it's a really clever story, and it's so representative of the potential power for envy in our lives. But we could turn to the Bible, and we could see loads of these stories throughout. You know, we can start at the beginning. Adam and Eve 
Satan made Eve envious of what God had that she didn't. Cain became envious of God's favor to Abel. Joseph's brothers were envious of Jacob's favor towards him. Saul was stricken with envy over David's popularity and anointing. And then ultimately, in Matthew 27, when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asked the chief priests in the crowds, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? In Matthew 27, it says, it was because of envy that they delivered him up. God was put to death because of untamed envy. We live in a culture that is often blind to the true power in envy and boasting. You know, everything around us is shouting, your feelings are totally valid and true. You may feel envious, well fine, go and get it. At any cost, who said I can't have somebody else's wife or husband or the house or the lifestyle that they have? Don't worry about the trail of destruction that you might leave. It isn't, you know, is it not up to me to decide what I want, what I'm going to do? Uh, of course, in a world that doesn't accept and surrender to God, then anything goes. Now, this letter, Corinthians, wasn't written to the world. It was written to the church. And in preparing for this message, I was kind of mindful that I was going into a little bit of a rant and I was going to give you a bit of a rant about the world and how it's so broken. And I actually thought, you know what? Who am I to rant, actually? God saved me. He helped me slowly begin to see a little clearer. You know, I was subject to exactly the same blindness as everyone else. Salvation only came through his mercy and his kindness coming to me. And I think it's really important not to let that truth go very far from us. That's got to be so close to us, particularly as we kind of grow in the things that God does bring to us. So I'd like to just consider a little about what the Bible has to say about envy, and in particular, how it gains power from us and what we can do about it. So I'm going to consider a real familiar chunk of Scripture. I don't know if the previous one was... Are you able to put... It's Galatians 5, 16 to 26. I know this is going to be very familiar to some, but there's a a good reason for us uh, looking at it. uh, Okay, not to worry. Okay, so 5, 16 to 26. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. All human beings have a physical body. Our body is able to think, thanks to the brain, (laughs) and produce feelings and emotions due to the whole mixture of factors going on, you know, including our internal consciousness, which I might add, scientists just don't really know exactly how it exists and where exactly it is inside of us. Now, the Bible conveniently bundles all this together and calls it the flesh. Our flesh is able to produce good emotions and feelings as well as bad emotions and feelings. This is probably why there's a lot of non-Christians, of course, who do great things, you know. There's loads of people around who aren't Christians who are kind, generous, loving, considerate. You know, our flesh was originally good, holy good in nature. God made it after all. However, due to the fall, our flesh has been corrupted by sin. Now, the level of corruption that we experience in our flesh is specific to our individual circumstances, our backgrounds, our cultural environments, our DNA even. You know, you could be someone who has had a really positive background, no DNA issues, your flesh has not experienced the level of corruption compared to someone else, but you could be that someone else who has had the opposite, actually, a really horrific background, subject to the effects of others' sin in a large way, perhaps even inherited genetic issues that passed down from previous generations. I think it wouldn't be an understatement to describe the potential effects of sin on our flesh as kind of like the aftermath of a nuclear fallout. It's kind of soaked into the ground, you may not be able to sort of see much evidence of the original event itself. But if you live in the environment where it is there, when certain pressures come along that cause it to come to the surface, you will eventually experience the effects of it. Now, this is the condition of all human beings, okay? Christian and non-Christian alike. So when in the Galatians passage, it talks about the works of the flesh, it is referring to the desires, the passions and the feelings that come out of the aftermath of the effect of sin in our lives. It's referring specifically to the corrupted part of our flesh. Okay, you could see it almost like it's the area in our garden where the weeds grow. Okay, (laughs) not the whole garden, it's the areas where the weeds specifically grow. Now, I think, I consider that one of the traps we all fall into as Christians is that we somehow believe that Scripture says that once we've become a Christian, the aftermath of sin should have gone. It should no longer be there. So when we find feelings, such as those listed in the passage, rising up, including envy, we feel really condemned, (laughs) deflated, But that's really silly because it's like one weed pointing to another weed and saying, you weed. (laughs) Because they're both coming out of our fallen, corrupted flesh. Another trap that we can fall into is where we don't feel envy rising up very often. And of course, that's a good thing. Except sometimes other things rise up instead. Pride, which leads to boastfulness. 
we don't feel condemned, we just end up looking down at others, thinking that somehow we are better than them. This is also a work of our flesh. Our successes can cause corruption in our flesh if we somehow mishandle the favour that God gives us. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why the Proverbs says, you know, never be wise in your own eyes. It's almost like don't give your flesh the opportunity to boast too much about something because it kind of will do. Take the thoughts captive. I think it is really important that there is a few things about our flesh that we take great care never to stop believing. You know, regard these truths. Firstly, God loves us and calls us to look after our flesh. You know, but it is corrupted in places. And even though it produces good things, it is capable of producing bad. Our flesh is easily influenced by other things around us. This includes other human beings, cultural stuff, anything really that we allow it to have the attention of. And our flesh on its own doesn't actually have the power to resist some of these things. The final thing is that the devil seeks to gain a foothold through our flesh. He knows that is the way in because he wants to destroy lives. So he will try and get in through our flesh, through our weaknesses. It is his aim to seek to steal, to kill and destroy. But what actually happened when we became a Christian? I think, John, you referred to it earlier. We, we made a decision to die. When we became a Christian, we chose to surrender ourselves, my flesh, everything I am, to God. I metaphorically, at that point, I signed my death certificate saying, I am no longer mine, I'm yours, and I hand myself to you. And in return, at that point, God said, I I accept your surrender, and I'm going to plant myself in you. God creates a new place within our persons, a place that operates kind of alongside our flesh, But it isn't the flesh. It's still within us. It's a place for his spirit to reside and work from. And he then said, I'm going to start a process of bringing you to life again through the spirit. But that was the start. And from that point forward, this process of dying to the flesh, to the feelings, to the stuff but being brought alive again by the Spirit in us, it began. And that is the process that we continue to live and walk out every day of our physical lives here in this world until one day our flesh totally dies and God completely gives us a new resurrected body without the corruption of sin in it anymore. Hallelujah. I really love that that last song. That got me because... The song about he is resurrecting me. It's not he will resurrect me. He will resurrect me in the future when we die and we have a new body. It's like he's resurrecting us now. When we choose to say no and we say, God, this feeling I hand to you, I give it to you. I want you, God. It's like, okay, I'm going to deal with it. And what you find is that resurrection starts to happen inside of you. The spirit starts to say, okay, you've given that over to me. I'm going to come and I'm going to breathe life into you again. 
And when you start to experience that thing happening in your life, you go, I don't want anything else. That is so amazing. When the spirit starts to replace, it's like, oh, I really wanted this in my life for so long. And I've let go of it, and I keep giving it to you, God. And God says, it's okay. I've got my spirit for you. I've got the fullness of Christ in you. I've got these things that I want to put in you, and I'm going to keep giving them to you. Every time you say, let go of that stuff, it's there, I want it gone, I'm going to give you my spirit. That is so fantastic. I am so, I love that. It is so good. It so helped me out in the things where I felt so rejected, so broken, so envious. It's that God coming to us and giving me his spirit. You know, I don't want anything else. I want his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what we want. He is the fullness. He satisfies every part of us. You know, and that is so amazing. But there is something that we've kind of got to do in this. It's not just left down to us to completely do it. We've got to be willing to say, here it is, God. I hand it over to you again. I'm yours. <laughs> My feelings, they're blah. The, cat, the, the problem is, is that if we don't do that, the consequences can be catastrophic, actually. Galatians 6, 7 to 8 says, For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God's grace, God's grace is always there for us as these feelings arise in our lives. You know, putting the flesh to death is not something that we can actually do. We can't. We can't do it ourselves. I mean, we can have some little bits of victory in our flesh, but we need ultimately his grace his spirit, his power to help us do that. And our journey is about learning to cooperate with his work in us. And it's an ongoing journey, you know, individually and together as a body, as we learn to sort of tune in more into what is the spirit leading us in. He's seeking to shape our appetites, reshape our appetites, reshape our desires. And as he does that, the power of that kind of corrupt part of my flesh is slowly weakened. And it's giving more space for his love to come in, keep filling us up. It's so important that we seek to give the spirit priority in our lives. We must be seeking to give the spirit priority. You know, give me today my daily bread, God because the corrupt nature inside of me will have everything else. Give me the bread of your spirit today. Give me your word. I need it. It feeds me. I want it. It's the best. It is the best. And I know I'm going to have to let go of some of this other stuff in order to keep that. But that's something that an appetite changes. It happens in, over time. You sort of, I don't want that stuff anymore. I might be tempted at times, but actually, I want this even more. And this is so much better. The timing for God working out stuff in our lives is ultimately led by him. Although, as I say, we've got a part to play. You know, there may be some reasons why stuff remains in us for a lifetime. I know there is some stuff in my flesh that keeps popping up, that keeps these struggles that I have. Why? I've been a Christian for 25 years. How come they have not gone? Well, some of that is in his timing, in his provision. I think 
He's not about perfecting us individually. He's about perfecting us as a church as well. And I think there is probably something in that as well as to why certain stuff is left. But I don't want to go down that route too far. It is for us to ultimately say, God, <laughs> it's, I'm handing it to you. So God's ongoing invitation to us is to keep turning our gaze to that portrait of perfect love. That is the face of Jesus. You know, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we do, as we seek his face, as we seek his face, despite the pain of feelings and stuff, his love keep comes to us, will keep coming to us through his spirit, working within us. And in due course, we will notice transformations happen. We will notice fruit is happening. The fruit that we've really wanted. I'm kind of coming to an end now, but you know, I just want to pray for us. I'll, I need to pray for myself. But I just want to ask you today, you know, as I've shared, is there anything that you're really struggling with? Is there anything you're envious about particularly or, or struggle with boasting? It doesn't even need to be that. It could be something else. Or perhaps, you know, I want to pray as being parents as well, because that's, as I said, God says, well done. That's a tough call. But I really believe God wants to grow us as parents, sort of physically and spiritually as well. So I'd just like you, in a moment, um, I will pray. Um, and we're also, again, also going to move into communion. John will come and lead us in communion in a little bit. Um, in my prayer, I want us to remember the fact that ultimately, this is possible only because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay? And that's why we take communion together. We take communion because we want to remember it was his cost, his sacrifice that has enabled the release of the spirit. You know, we can have that spirit in us because he gave himself up completely for us. So whether you're at home or in the hall, um, maybe you'd like to just uh, close your eyes and turn your attention to Jesus. Lord, I just want to thank you um, that... You love us. I thank you that you know all the things in us. And yet you died for us. And I thank you, God, that you have given us your spirit to be set free. And we know that there's stuff in our life where that seems to be a long journey and there's other stuff that just happens. And we just want to hand it all to you again. And we just want to pray and ask God, come and have your way. Come and take away the stuff that really traps us and ensnares us. Come and give us more love. I want more love. I don't want the other stuff. But we need you to help us even shape what we want. God, so please come and help us. And bless us and thank you so much that you do.